sometimes as we come to the word, we ask the Lord to, to show us what it means. And it's like, well, we think we might kind of know what it means. We kind of have an idea what you might say. As I read through this one and as I um, prepared to, uh, to share it with you, I thought, I really actually need Jim to teach me on this one. So um, in that spirit, let's ask God to, uh, to show us the meaning of uh, this passage of scripture that Jim is teaching from today. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are grateful that you are a father to us. Um, we ask you to um, show us the meaning of this text and help us to understand you um, and your world better through it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 to 20. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that my work for you may have been wasted. Friends, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What? <laughs> you have done me no wrong. You know that it, uh, that it was because of a physical infirmity that I first announced the gospel to you. Though my condition put you to the test, you did not scorn or despise me, but welcomed me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What has become of the goodwill you felt? For I testify that, had it been possible, you have, would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to exclude you so that you may make much of them. It is good to be made much of for a good purpose at all times, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I were present with you now and could change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. I'll do my best, Adam. <laughs> Thankfully, I can trust in the Holy Spirit working through this. As always, if I don't get to a question you might have about the passage, I welcome questions after the sermon. I always love it when someone asks me something. I, I can't always get to everything. But as I was uh, thinking about this passage in, in our service today, uh, what came to my mind uh, was actually a scene from uh, the Gospels, one of the best-known scenes in the Gospels. Uh, uh, you may recall Jesus' disciples are afraid that Jesus is being bothered by some people who are bringing children to him for a blessing. And in response, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Uh, do not hinder them, uh, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And he goes on to make uh, children the models of Christian faith. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Right? In first century Jewish Palestine, of course, 
this would have been shocking. Today we live in uh, what's probably one of the most child-centric societies uh, in all of history, but in the ancient world, things were very different. Uh, children had no special status or, or, or any rights, and that's what made it so surprising that Jesus not just had time for children, but he made them the model of faith. Right? This is a, a good day to, to remember these words of Jesus as we celebrate uh, celebrated the, the professions of faith and, and baptisms uh, earlier. But they also point us to what we've been learning in our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We've seen that as Paul describes the good news of the gospel, that the kingdom of God, he says uh, in different ways over and over again, that the kingdom of God is received, not achieved. And isn't it interesting that Paul also makes the image of a trusting child central to his description of Christian faith? Believers, he says, have been adopted as children. You are no longer a slave, but a child. It's almost like he might have gotten the idea from Jesus. As we've seen, Paul writes to the Galatians out of concern that they began their Christian lives uh, with this posture, believing the good news of the gospel of grace. But they've been influenced by new teachers who have come to tell them that now they needed to keep the law in order to be saved. And Paul writes to persuade them and, and us that the Christian life is a life of faith from beginning to end. And though we are called to mature, we never outgrow childlike faith and trust. The gospel is the message that we believe at the beginning of the Christian life, but it's also the message to which we return daily for growth in the Christian life. And so, in this text today, we discover three things about the freedom that comes from this kind of faith. And let's look at each one of them. First, the nature of Christian freedom. Second, the character of Christian freedom. And third, the goal of Christian freedom. Now let's start with the nature of Christian freedom and begin with what Paul says that believers have been freed from. In verses 8 and 9, Paul describes a shift from slavery to freedom. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? I want to talk about these weak and beggarly elemental spirits. What does that mean? There is actually a lot of debate uh, about how best to translate this phrase. And let me just share a couple of other translations. Our, our translation here today is uh, in the bulletin is from the NRSV, the New Revised uh, Standard Version. Uh, another translation, the NIV, the New International Version, uh, says instead, uh, the weak and miserable forces. So not the weak and beggarly elemental spirits, but the, the weak and miserable forces. And the, the ESV, the English Standard Version, talks about the weak and worthless elementary principles. 
So which is it? Are we talking about uh, being freed from spirits or forces or principles? Well, the, the Greek word is uh, the Greek word stokeia. And what stokeia means most basically is any series of basic elements. Uh, so in language, uh, the stoicheia would be the basic sounds of the language, the alphabet. Uh, in physics, the, the stoicheia would be the basic materials of the world. Uh, in the ancient world, they understood these to be earth, air, water, and fire. And today, we might understand the stoicheia as like the periodic table. Uh, in any kind of teaching, uh, the stoicheia would be the basic fundamental principles that a person needs to grasp. And so people in the ancient world, as they thought about these stoicheia, these, these basic principles or forces, or perhaps they were spiritual in nature, they were just as interested as we are today in understanding these basic structures of the universe. And they believed that if you could explain those underlying structures, you could explain human behavior in life and how to control it. And this is why some came to see those basic principles or forces as spiritual forces. And these different translations that I read, they reflect really uh, the debate in the ancient world over what the stoicheia were. Were they supernatural spirits or were they natural forces or, or principles of some kind? So I, I share all of that to say that, that today we may have grown in our scientific understanding of the basic elements of the universe, right? We can describe in, in so much greater detail what those basic elements are, what the, the stoicheia may be, but we still identify both material and immaterial realities that determine human life. You know, we talk about brain chemistry or DNA or economic pressures like the market or social structures and systems. And we look to our descriptions of these, of these forces or these principles in order to explain and better control our world. These are all things which the Apostle Paul, I think, would have understood as the stoicheia. And, and notice how nuanced Paul's understanding is here. On the one hand, he says these forces are real. Uh, he says that they're not gods, right? They're, they're not ultimate. They're not divine. Uh, but they are real spirits or forces or principles, however you translate it. They have some reality and power in terms of how the world operates. But on the other hand, he's clear that for the believer, they are not all powerful or controlling. There might have been a time that they seemed to be enslaving, but now they are weak and beggarly. They're nothing compared to the freedom that has been given through the work of the Messiah. And this is why he brings up specifically 
that the Galatian Christians are observing special days and months and seasons and years. He's not talking here about holidays or celebrating birthdays or solstice parties, perhaps. In the ancient world, carefully observing the changing seasons and cycles and the constellations of the stars were ways to conform one's life to the structures of the universe in order to achieve success. And Paul is saying, you don't have to do that anymore. You've been set free. So in our modern scientific society, we don't argue very much about whether following the patterns of the stars will ensure a good crop or freedom from disease. But there is still a very live debate about the power of social structures and systems, especially when it comes to injustice, isn't there? And there's a very clear divide as we think about this. On, on the one side are conservatives who deny the reality of systemic evils and focus only on the responsibility and the freedom of the individual. On the other side are liberals who make changing systems central and essential to, to the pursuit of justice. So where should Christians fit into this debate? Well, following what Paul says in Galatians, Christians wouldn't seem to fit into either one of these categories, either the conservative side that denies the realities of systemic evils, or the liberal side that says those are all defining for our world. With Paul, Christians can affirm the reality of the stoicheia, uh, the elemental spirits or forces. These forces are real and they're powerful and they determine our society in so many different ways. At the same time, we also need to say with Paul that compared to the power of God, these forces are weak and beggarly. There is a freedom for the believer in Jesus Christ uh, that they can know on a fundamental level that they have been freed from the power of the system or the market or perhaps even your brain chemistry. While there is still a place for these realities, they no longer determine your identity as a son or a daughter of God. If you believe this is true, then you will be realistic about the need to reform unjust systems, but you will also be able to do so with joy and grace and hope. This brings us to our, our second point today the character of Christian freedom. In, in our text, the Apostle Paul shows us two aspects of the Christian freedom uh, in his relationship with the Galatian Christians. First, he says in verse 12, friends, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. So what is he alluding to here? Uh, what, what it is, is he's, uh, he's alluding to the fact that there was a massive culture, cultural and ethnic divide between Paul as a Jew 
and the Galatians who were predominantly Gentiles. And yet Paul, in his ministry to them, was committed to bridging that gap, becoming like they were, by being extraordinarily flexible culturally and not allowing any non-essential to get in the way of his communication of the gospel. Uh, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul explains his approach in more detail. In, in chapter 9, verses 20 to 22, Paul says this, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So Paul was saying, for the sake of the gospel, he was willing to give up his traditions, his culture, his comfort, his preferences. You can only do something like that if your identity is not found in any of those things, in your traditions or your culture, but in Christ alone. But if you're secure in the gospel message that you were accepted by grace, and you know deep down that your righteousness is not found in your traditions or your culture, then you can be extraordinarily gracious as you come across people who are different from you. So that's the first aspect of the kind of freedom that Paul shows us here. The, the second aspect of Paul's freedom that we see here is in verse 16, when he says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul is not only committed to an extraordinary graciousness with other people, but he's equally dedicated to an extraordinary truth-telling with them. He's willing to challenge the Galatians, to, to confront them where necessary, even at the risk of losing their approval and their affirmation. So we see that Paul was not only uh, committed to grace, he was also committed to truth. And it's this combination that is so unusual. You know, some of us uh, don't have uh, a problem telling people the truth, but we easily become arrogant or critical about it. Others of us can be very gracious and accommodating, but we have a hard time challenging people when it's necessary. What we see in Paul is a combination of both grace and truth that shows that he's basing his identity on something that goes beyond himself. Let me offer an illustration. Uh, in the classic film, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, the central character uh, is this man, Andy Dufresne, uh, played by Tim Robbins. Uh, and Andy Dufresne has been sentenced to multiple life sentences for a murder he did not commit, uh, murdering his wife. And you might expect that he would be despondent and depressed, but in the prison he enjoys an inner freedom that sets him apart from the other prisoners and influences the whole institution. So for example, uh, one day, in an act of defiance against the prison authorities, 
Andy locks himself in the prison warden's office, and he plays Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro over the prison's loudspeakers. And as the warden bangs on his door in anger, the whole prison comes to a stop as the inmates listen to this heavenly music. And though they are locked up as hardened criminals, for a moment they share joy together. And one of Andy's fellow inmates read uh, comments in a voiceover. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. There's something about Andy Dufresne uh, that illustrates uh, the character of Christian freedom, even in, the, even in the midst of a broken and unjust system. He lives in that system, very literally, as a prisoner, under the authority of a tyrannical, corrupt warden. But Andy is not defined by his circumstances. His life, like the beauty of Mozart's music, point beyond the prison to something greater. If you believe that you are saved by grace, then this kind of inner freedom is available to you, whatever your circumstances. The gospel says that God sent his son to redeem and adopt you as his child when you had done nothing at all to earn his affection. He's perfectly truthful about our brokenness and our sin, but he is also perfectly gracious in accommodating himself to our need for salvation. He's willing to be treated like a slave so that you might be adopted as a son. True freedom is knowing that you are a child of God who can never lose your position in the family because it's not based on what you have done but on what he has done for you. The theologian and author Richard Lovelace describes what happens when Christians lose sight of this great truth and instead of basing their identity on grace, start looking to their obedience and good works to give them a sense of credibility. Uh, and I, I put a quote on the reflections page, on, on page four, that I, I'd like to read. Richard Lovelace says this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians, because they have too much light to rest easily under the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. They cling desperately to legal pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. Now, as you think about that, there are a lot of reasons uh, to be discouraged about the state of uh, Christianity in our world today. 
I, I know you all are watching the documentaries and reading the news, but do you see the issue? Christians have the same problem as everyone else. We don't want to believe the gospel. The gospel exposes our hearts and shows us what's really there, our self-centeredness and our sin. But the gospel also assures us that God loves and accepts us in Jesus apart from our achievements. We are more broken and sinful than we may have realized, but we are also more loved than we could ever imagine. When you believe this, you can be radically honest, not just with other people, but even with yourself. And at the same time, you can be completely secure in God's love for you. This brings us to our final point today, the goal of Christian freedom. The goal of a Christian is not simply to be a good person. Look at verse 19. Uh, the imagery that Paul uses here is so important. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the pain of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I love that, that Paul uses the imagery of, of childbirth here uh, because childbirth is a process that, while painful, is heading inevitably towards a clear goal of birth and new life. It may at times feel like agony, but there is something beautiful coming. Don't give up. And for Paul, even though he's perplexed that the Galatian Christians have turned away from his teaching of grace, he longs for Christ to be formed in them. That's the goal. Christ formed in you. Notice he doesn't say, I am in the pain of childbirth until you are acting like Jesus, but until Christ is formed in you. As we've seen over and over again, God is the active agent here, not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but throughout, through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you believe that the goal of the Christian life is not just to be like Jesus in an abstract way, but to have Christ formed in you, this changes everything. Because if Christ is the one being formed in you, it means that he is taking the initiative in your life. You have been drawn into a process of sanctification that begins and ends in love. It begins with the love of Christ for you, entering into the human experience of sin and suffering, dying and rising again on the third day. And it ends with his spirit taking up residence in your life that his life might be, his love might be expressed through you to others. Most of you probably know how the Shawshank Redemption ends. Andy Dufresne endures more and more abuse from guards and inmates, uh, but he's slowly working out a plan to escape the prison. 
He spends 19 years digging a tunnel out of his cell with a rock hammer. And the movie comes to a climax with one of the greatest prison escape sequences uh, of all time. On the night he escapes uh, during a thunderstorm, and he breaks into a sewage pipe and crawls through the sewage naked under the walls of the prison. Finally, after hundreds of yards, he emerges on the outside where he is washed clean in the pouring rain. This is a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us and also of what we celebrate in baptism. This grace that we've been talking about is not an abstract idea. It's a person. In his incarnation, Jesus entered into the mess of our brokenness and sin. On the cross, he was stripped naked. He was abused and killed, even though he was innocent. But through his death and resurrection, he has opened a way to new life, and he invites you to follow him, to live with him in a relationship of trust and love with God the Father. Let me end with this. In Jesus' most famous parable in, in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the prodigal takes his inheritance and goes into a far country uh, where he loses everything. And when he comes to his senses, he realizes that he'd be better off at home, and he goes back. But he doesn't really believe uh, that his father will welcome him with open arms. His plan is to ask his father for a job. He doesn't believe that he's worthy to be called a son any longer. He just wants to be taken back as a servant. But that's not what happens. Jesus says, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Friends, believe the good news. The Father welcomes you with open arms today. You don't have to prove anything to him to earn his love. He loves you because he loves you. And when you go to him, no matter what has happened, he will embrace you and he will celebrate over you every time. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we do uh, give you thanks today uh, for your grace revealed to us and to the world in the person and work of Jesus. We look to him today. We, we rest uh, in uh, his life, in his death, in his resurrection. We believe that you offer us through faith uh, his righteousness. And so we look to him and uh, not to our works uh, to earn your affection. Uh, we believe that you truly do love us and you've revealed it. And so we trust in you. And we pray that you would increase our faith, uh, that we might live in the light of this grace every day.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.